Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, I am back from TIFF with lots to share. We have a review of A Haunting in Venice, and Craig Gillespie joins us to talk about dumb money. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 279 of Real Blend, a podcast that has a newfound appreciation of Nickelback. Thank you very much to Matt Karen, Real Blend listener, friend of the show, who took me to go see the Nickelback documentary at the Toronto International Film Festival. So I'm back from TIFF with a ton of stuff to share with you guys. We're also going to have a review of A Haunting in Venice, because I believe Jakey went to go see that. Uh, And our guest this week is director Craig Gillespie, who's going to join us to talk about the film Dumb Money ahead of that film's wide release. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor at Cinema Blend and the co-host of the Real Blend podcast. Kev, it was hat day. Did nobody tell you this? Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., not wearing a hat, when which you, you guys have, would know. When you have luxurious, just yeah. just golden brown hair like right. Kevin McCarthy, you don't bury that under a hat. You let That's it true. breathe, baby. That's true. exactly the answer. So Jake <laughs> Jake nailed it. No, no, it's funny. I actually, I've been wearing a hat on the show. I, was, I feel like Kev normally goes yeah. hat. He, Kev's normally guy. pro hat. I will say this is actually really funny. I was just driving home from work and we're starting a little late late because I was stuck in traffic. But I have a Pixar hat that I got when we all went to Pixar mm-hmm. together. Love that hat. And I've been wearing it a lot. And I was like and I literally said to myself in the car, is it a hat day or not a hat day? <laughs> and, 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 and right when I log on, I see you two wearing hats. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually glad, a bitch. I didn't What's I'm glad I didn't choose that. I, I, I got to wear it. I got I to gotta throw you all off a little bit. Jake Hamilton never hides his award winning hair. Uh it's, it's it's hat day. I I uh, took off work sick today. I've been under the weather, so oh, no. um, so yeah. Baby, so that's that's why okay? it's that's why it's hat day. Yeah, I'm all good. I just needed it. You know, it's allergies and the weather's changing here in Chicago. And right, yeah, you right. know, I I turn into a big baby whenever I get a scratchy throat. So uh, took a COVID test. I'm fine. Don't worry. Um, he went saw, but, he went uh, saw Oppenheimer. That's what he was doing today. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. And I had no voice left by the time I was done. No, so I just right. you know it's one of those days where you take off and nothing says you're legitimately sick like taking off on a Wednesday and being back at work on Thursday. I feel like that tells people. Yeah, you're legit actually sick. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was a hat day, to say the least. It's almost winter in Chicago, isn't it? Isn't that coming? Oh, like it's right beautiful. Oh, my God, it's gorgeous. It's a it's what is it like 65 degrees right now? The sun's out. Just took the dog for a walk before we started rolling. And in about eight days, it'll be negative eight. <laughs> snowy. Gonna remind everybody that this is a film podcast. Uh, <laughs> hey, did you know? Did you know we used to be an awards podcast? We're gonna talk you, about movies. In you a guys, bit, you I guys promise. will be really proud of me because so Jake and Sean and Gabe, they're they're the football fans of the show, and like you have so, become. I know. I take that you have become a football fan. You are no, a football fan, sir. That's what I wanted to say. I think you guys will be proud of me because sometimes we're in the text thread and the guys are going back and forth about their fantasy teams and things like that. Um, but I, I said this in the show before last year, I really started becoming invested in football just me, uh, primarily because of the technical aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I love watching how how the plays are done. I love the use of the clock. I love the psychology that's used in the game. Dude, in the terms technology of the to uh, to get the like the, the the line of scrimmage and everything moved on. the It's, it's pretty unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. But anyway, so I've, I've been watching a lot of football. So when, now that you guys make football references on the show, I will know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, like I, I just know. sent in, in the real blend texter. I just sent uh, what I thought was funniest. It was um, Aaron Rodgers uh, season recap. And the, and it was a clip of if you're familiar with the film, Along Came Polly, when <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman hits the dance floor and just yeah. instantly hits the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and they said that was Aaron Rodgers. Season. And yeah, I don't like Aaron Rodgers. So I don't I know. Did you, either of you guys see Dumb Money? Did you watch Dumb Money yet? No. No. 
Dumb Money is the first movie that I watched where I felt like this movie needs Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like he just would have nailed one oh, of wow. the roles. I feel like most movies need uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've said this said before, and I, I'm sure people will give me crap for this, but my, out of everything he ever did, I mean, I love his dramatic work. I think Doogie sure. Nights might be the, my favorite thing he's done from an acting point or the master. Or um, Doubt. Dude, Doubt. doubt. Is, I love but, Doubt. The performance I always go to in my head is Along Came Polly every single time because it, 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 first of all, he, he's hilarious in it. It's also it, it, the the acting aspect of him being an actor. What was the movie Crocodile Tears that he was in? <laughs> like, I genuinely believe that's and that and Twister are like two of my favorite. I was forgetting in Twister. He's yeah. so funny. I, I always, think, I always uh, forget how amazing he is in Mission Impossible 3. Dude, oh, am I three might be MI three might be one of the most underrated action movies. The opening of all time. sequence, the the countdown from ten in Mission we so Gabe would Our be fine. clawing his face off if he yes. were here right now. I, I want people to tell us, do you, in the comments, do you, do you like, like these tangents? I, I like the, when in the beginning we just kind of air out some things. If you right. don't, let us know. Because if yeah. Gabe, you know, if Gabe sees that and he'll, he'll cut it out, it's fine. We won't but, listen to you, but it's just nice to know. Let us know. Well, we never really plan these things. They just yeah. happen. No. <laughs> we just kind of roll with them. So, all right, yeah. listen, housekeeping. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Thank you very much for joining the show. If you're in the Friday notification crew, let us know in the comments. I like to sort of jump down there on Friday morning and check out who is <clears throat> logging in and watching us on the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash Real Blend Podcast. So we would really appreciate if you guys uh, subscribed to the channel. We crossed 15,000 most recently. I don't think we recognize that on the show, which is fantastic. And uh, of okay, course, yeah, at what point do we start uh, putting our sights on getting that silver button for YouTube? What is the silver button? Is that a hundred thousand? Yeah, a hundred thousand. Good Lord, dude. We have to go so far. If you're listening. Yeah. Yes. It's a New lot task. of fake sites. I mean, we're not Jake's takes after a while. Have goals. True. Have a have goals, Real baby. Blend podcast. Have goals. Um, if you've signed up for the Real Blend premium also, by the way, you get an ad free version of the show. Uh, and a newsletter for me, not this week, but next week you'll get a newsletter. So check the description for information on where you can sign up. All right. I mentioned Dumb Money and uh, it's a film that played the Toronto Film Festival. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, could vie for the audience award. Got a great reception while it was up there. A lot of people came out of it talking about it being a really crowd pleasing sort of underdog um, people against Wall Street hedge fund folks. It's the if you don't when know did this happen the movie. Uh, it was during the pandemic, so I think it was 2020 um, or 2021. And I remember it distinctly because this is what PJ started to talk to me about when he wanted me to help him get involved in the stock market. It's essentially uh, day traders and retail traders who don't know that much about the market, who during the pandemic were looking for some way to invest in a community and communicate with others. Um, so they were following this Reddit thread called Wall Street Tips or Wall Street Stock. There's a Reddit thread that was um, recommending stocks to go after. And there was a guy Ooh. on there who's played by Paul Dano in this film whose screen name, Wall Street Bets. Thank you very much. Uh, his screen name was Roaring Kitty. And so it's it's this Time in our lives where if you tried to describe it to someone 20 years ago, none of it would make sense because <laughs> you were like, oh, there's a guy who's streaming on YouTube and he refers to his name as Roaring Kitty uh, and people are following him in Reddit and he's driving up this stock. So all he did was record a video that says like, hey, I think GameStop is undervalued <laughs> and I think it's a good stock for people to invest in if you want to. 
And a ton of people from around the country took it as their mission uh, to drive up falsely the value of GameStop. And it became like this head to head clash between the hedge fund guys who were shorting the stock and essentially mm-hmm. saying we're betting against GameStop. We want GameStop to fail. And these day to day traders who said, no, we're going to drive the price of the stock up. And it became who's going to blink first, because if anybody decides that they're going to start to sell, then there's a runoff and everybody starts to sell and the price of the stock comes all the way back down again. And then the hedge fund guys win. So Craig Gillespie drives a ton of legitimate tension out of who's going to sell and who's going to get out of the stock first. And it's an inc- incredibly well done story. So I, I, I've said on the show, I've seen Oppenheimer eight times. Every single time I saw Oppenheimer, there was the dumb money trailer. And so oh. to hear that explanation explains a lot because in the trailer, at the end of the trailer, there's this bit where they do an, a, a cross cutting between Paul Dano talking about how much money they made and then Seth Rogen talking about how much money he lost. Yeah, so is, is Rogen is, is the Rogen... hedge fund guy who's shorting it. Okay. And and essentially when you look at the scenario in any other play, it made sense to short GameStop, you know? Mm. And and even like it's Rogan and Vincent D'Onofrio and Nick Offerman are the the guys who are essentially the rep of the of the hedge fund guys who have all this money in it. And every time that they hear like, oh, there's different people who are investing in GameStop, but they're called retail uh, investors and they, they laugh to themselves and they go, oh, they always fail. You know, mm-hmm. like just inevitably we're going to wait them out and it's going to it's not dissimilar to what we're going through with the stock uh, with a, the strike right now. And the studio is kind of saying, hey, I'm just we're going to wait them out. Eventually, they're going to cave and start to sell off because there's Paul Dano's character who is essentially earning millions because of what he was able to put into the stock. But then Craig Gillespie goes around the horn and finds like these two college students who got in, you know, at a low uh, value. And um, America Ferrara plays a, a healthcare worker who, again, during COVID, when everybody was kind of struggling, she bought in. And it's like every time that it looks like you should get out, they all want to go in a little bit more. And they so she's earning maybe like. $78,000, you know, whereas Paul Dano's character is earning millions. But to her, that's life changing money. Anyway, this is called Dumb Money. Craig Gillespie is the director. You guys know him from I, Tanya. Um, what's the Craig do? Uh, he worked on something. Lars and the Real Girl with Ryan, uh, Ryan Gosling. I love that movie, by and the way. It's a terrific <clears throat> film. Um, and just a talented director who I really, really like. Great conversation. Got a chance to speak to him um, at, during the Toronto International Film Festival. So here he is on the Real Blend podcast talking about his new film, Dumb Money. Congratulations on the reception that you guys got out of here because the, the reaction to the film was through the roof. You had to be thrilled. I'd say I, I am very thrilled. It's almost it's always such an intense experience. You know, it's like you're releasing it out into the world. It's uh, this all the neurosis that starts to happen. It's like you're never quite sure how it's feeling. And uh it's 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 a little bit out of body because you're I haven't shown it to that many people yet and to sit there and watch it with a thousand people. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. it yeah, it's pretty high octane. And you had success with this festival too. You've had, you got a nice history with, with Toronto. So that that had to be a little bit comforting to at least come back to this area. No, I love Toronto. Actually, the crowd there is amazing. It's like they're always so warm and receptive and and they they seem to get me. <laughs> I guess <laughs> <laughs> the films are all a little like a little bit specific and 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 uh, 
you know, out there in their own way. For sure. Well, um, I want to thank you for uh, ruining DoorDash for me. I'm not sure I can ever trust <laughs> anybody who delivers food to me <laughs> again. Um, I'm going to assume that's not from uh, an experience that you've had on your own. It's not an experience, but interestingly, like uh, uh, we, in our research, we found out that that his brother Kevin was doing DoorDash. So right. that's why it's written into the film. Of course, you put Pete Davidson in that, it's not going to be an A to B situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I understand the Pete's role expanded, or, or, or I guess that they wrote more for him once once you got Pete. Is that true? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, just it, it happened with several of acts and with Anthony and America. It's like once getting the caliber of actors that came on board it just it just made, made it elevated everything it's like kind of mm -hmm. really like, we've got pete now what can we do it's like and we had we had some you know i think we a couple of the scenes we had added in just the idea of seeing pete and paul together to me was exciting and i said let's have a scene with the two brothers when all of this is happening with the subpoena with congress because we know they were trying to approach kevin as well so we're like so what's that conversation Right, and I talked to Rebecca Angelo and and Lauren Shukabloom about it, and they'd come back and be like, "Well, apparently Kevin ran naked in college in a thunderstorm," <laughs> so they sort of worked that into the narrative. Right, um, and obviously the end scene, which was added in, and uh, it just kept evolving. And then into the point with Pete, at the end of the shoot, we still had a little bit of time left on that last day, and I said, "Do we still have that?" basement across the street and they're like yeah and I said great let's put Pete down there let's have I'm Pete I'm going to read off of all of the subpoena that uh that Paul reads sorry not the subpoena but all of his testimony that he reads I'm going to have you react to it so that was like on the fly wow <laughs> oh my gosh that's fantastic what a great scene to be able to include in there I know it's like when I mentioned that to my editor he's like what that wasn't you guys just grabbed that it's like so central to the third act <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah absolutely I, I mean to that end because when people are going to watch this and they're going to think first off it's one of the, it's one of the most difficult stories to sort of believe that that all of it happened um but was there a scene that you know happened but you were still worried that presenting it to the audience that they were going to have a tough time making the leap and believing it even though it, it was a legit thing that happened um, maybe the pig scene. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but it, again, it's like it's, with truth being stranger than fiction. It's like the week before. It's like every time every actor was almost its own week coming in with their own location, their own sure. short film. And so I'd always start prepping that, you know, week before for the next actor. And I, I just Googled Steve Cohen and saw that we, we had the idea. We heard that he had a pet that he bought as a work of art with tattoos. Like there's a, there's a European artist that does this. So we heard about that sale. So okay. we had a pig coming in. And then I happened to read that he had a pet pig for almost a decade in the family home <laughs> that they ended up having to send away because it got too big. Right. And, you know what? Let's switch this and put him in the house. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. He was a little larger than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> and how did Vincent handle him? Well, he was, he was amazing. He was like so comfortable with it. He's like immediately like, I'm going to, are you okay if we have the pig here and you're making a sandwich? And he starts like tossing some food down to the pig. And 
right walk through that and just you know it's like again it's like you want it to look as as normal and natural as possible it's like the is in theory been used to living with this guy walking around for years right right <laughs> all right i want to know i think this is one of the most integral questions that you can ask anybody after seeing this movie i think it tells you everything you need to know about them you personally would you have held or would you have sold um i i was i was personally got in <laughs> oh really okay i my son introduced me to this my son was on wall street bets as it was happening living right. through COVID with us and he was on this intense wild ride he okay. timed it perfectly he kind of had a very similar trajectory to the college girls where got the options all the way up to the where it, it spiked got out did very well okay the next day robin hood does the freeze it plummets and then there's like another surge again where everybody starts to buy in He's like, I'm going to buy another option. I do not recommend it okay, at all. Um, it's so volatile right now. There's no idea. It's probably not going to hit. But, you know, that's part of the frenzy that's happening. I'm like, you know what? I'm in. I'm, I'll buy an option. Okay. Lost it all. No. <laughs> yeah, about, it's funny. about four days. Yeah, I learned, very, I learned very quickly how an option works. Your son was much older. My son was a teenager who was explaining this all to me in real time. And it was one of the things that got him interested. He's currently uh, at university and he's studying to be an analyst. And it was this story that really got him going on it. And it was the viral aspect of it. It was the yeah. fact that he was seeing these memes going everywhere and it got him interested in it. And was when I saw this film and I called him and said, you're going to have to watch this movie when it comes out. He goes, this was the thing I was telling you about. <laughs> so it's it's put him on a good path, I hope. Uh, we'll yes, find out it. sooner or later. Um, I want to talk to you about the tool of uh, identifying people by their net worth. Um, I think it's a really great way to sort of immediately tell us like where they are uh, in their life. And it comes around full circle in a beautiful way to really talk about their arc. Can you can you talk about that decision and, and just the, the way that you want to introduce people? I mean, honestly, that was baked into the script with Rebecca and Lauren, but I thought mm -hmm. it was it's such a that disparity of wealth which we're obviously highlighting in this is what the movement was about is the frustration that was going on in the country and when you cut from you know 400 million dollars to 146 dollars you know 16 billion dollars with ken griffin i mean it's almost shocking to yeah. understand like you know like what this wealth disparity is and there's it's it's such a very clean concise way to do that in mm -hmm. each case and then it also highlights just the stakes for these individuals for these uh, day traders when they're going from 146 dollars to 185 thousand dollars like sure the stakes are just magnified in a way that's different than the hedge fund guys right right yeah the idea of life-changing money yeah uh, for, life -changing for different individuals for not life-changing for the hedge fund guys yeah right exactly <laughs> that when he when when rogan's character is saying that he lost a billion dollars you know each yeah. day yeah. kind of thing it, it gives you it gives you such anxiety it gave me anxiety anyway <laughs> having him talk about it that way one of the things um well i guess having lived in this story for as long as you have now um i'm really curious if you if you think it was such a perfect storm of the rise of influence um everyone being home you know for covid you know could this happen again in your opinion i i think it, it may happen in another way i think i think covid was absolutely the catalyst for like 
what is going on in the world right now it's like obviously it put it put life on pause everybody everybody stopped they had to sort of reassess what was important to them it was a very intense period people losing loved ones people losing jobs people out of work government not there to support them you know and this and there's a social media just flaunting the disparity that was going on with the wealth all of these things came together and found a voice with GameStop. It, it's like mm. that happened to be the conduit for all of this frustration and anger and boredom. Mm. Um, so that's, it, it happened to be that. It's like, it also happened several weeks later with Black Lives Matter movement, with race issues. There was an enormous discontent and frustration happening there. There was just this, there was just this underneath this, this percolating of like all these emotions and recogn- recognizing a different kind of value system and really seeing what's important in life. So it's, I feel like it started during COVID. This was one of the the fallouts of that. It's still going on the disparity of wealth conversation, like, you know, what's important in life and and how to value like the individual very much at the forefront of conversation right now. It's happening in Hollywood right now with all the strikes. Mm -hmm. It's same themes, honestly, with what was going on with this and and the outrage that was happening there. Mm -hmm. So, it could happen more specifically with the stock market. Yeah, it could happen. There's there's already rumors going on, speculation online with the Reddit users of like, is GameStop going to come back again? Is it going to be something else? And there's that final line in the movie, which we got from like an actual quote, which I loved, which is, you know, they're always considered a fringe movement, mm-hmm. and you know now, now they've got the power to move markets, and it's a it's it's a real dynamic shift. In the perspective absolutely um and one of the things i think that's really cool that the movie does is completely embraces the pandemic and the masks and uses them in a way to drive the narrative forward um and there's that scene with america at the gas station you know where there's just this at that time this tangible need to make a human connection with somebody yeah. um and there's so many movies that don't want to date themselves, you know, so they'll dance around the pandemic as much as possible. But I love the fact you guys embraced it. Can you just talk yeah. about the decision to do that? Well, because COVID is such a factor in what was happening and, and, and in terms of people connecting online and being isolated, it's like I wanted to remind people of, of what our state of mind was there. And also it was an opportunity again, to show the disparity of wealth, because, you know, very like subliminally, you see like with the wealthy people, all the staff are wearing masks, but they're not. Or you're in Florida at parties where nobody's wearing masks. There was this underlying commentary that we managed to have as well, on top of just the reality of what the stakes were. There's, There's one brief moment in the movie. Again, we try to be very loyal to whatever Keith posted actually online. And this was, you know, this was a statement that he'd actually made in his, in his, uh, in his, when he was uh, being, uh, speaking at Congress, which is talking about the COVID and, and lost ones with family. And to be able to quickly jump around and remind people of the empty classrooms, of the empty streets, of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, all the things that we were going through at that moment, I think it's all part of, of what this discontent is and this yeah. frustration. So it was it was great to have that as a character. It was always going to be there. Craig, how daunting was it just to have so much material to go through in terms of, you know, the the recordings that that Keith made, you know, from his basement um, all the way up to the congressional uh, yeah. and, and choosing what to include in order to push the story forward? 
No, it's a good, it's a good question. Although it's like honestly, the way the way it starts for me is like is to, to find the like the emotional thrust of the story. Mm. And interestingly, like when I when I first came onto the project, it was moving so quickly that while they were writing the script, the hearings had been taking place. Mm. So when I got the script, they weren't actually in the script yet. And when I started investigating Keith Gill and his videos very quickly, like the, like the, the SEC hearing comes up in the testimony. Okay. And, and I was like, you can see like, like who he is as an individual right there and having to be very measured about his, like what he's saying, how he's saying it, how he's, you know, he's being like set up to almost be a scapegoat for this. But with all of that going on, you can see how he's actually leaning in and still standing by his convictions. Right. And I thought, Wow, that is that is where we want to end this film. That is the the journey that we're on to get there. So then it's like taking that spine with like being like subpoenaed, with like losing his job, with losing thirty million dollars in two days. It's like how do we like then build upon that like with all of our characters through all of those moments and those turns. So it's almost like you simplify it and then you start piling everything on that spine. You know. Right. Right. And uh, in all of your previous movies, you've worked with such strong female characters. Uh, and I want to shine a light on a character who I think is really integral to this story, and that's the character played by Shailene Woodley. Um, yes. In a way, she's the surrogate, I think, for the audience. You know, she's learning about a lot of this stuff, you know, in real time as her husband is kind of driving these these very risky moves forward. Um, and I love, it's the line where she essentially tells him to stay in, you know, that she's on yeah. board with it that felt like that's when I kind of cheered and I was like, that's right. Go <laughs> keep going. No, it was, um, it was how important is her character and, and how oh, much did she bring to it? She um, it's unbelievable. Honestly, in the sense of, again, the speed with which this was happening outside of Paul, all the actors were basically turning up for the shoot. Okay. So very graciously, she signed on early on in, you know, in the process, but in the prep part of that six weeks leading up to it, Paul and I would sit down and talk about these very significant turning points in the story. You know, when exactly what I was saying before, like when he lost $30 million and still held, like when he got fired from the company, uh, you know, and subpoenaed, it's like these moments that were happening. I would then call, you know, I wanted to know what happened when he told his parents he had 22 million. So these moments that we were talking about, I would then call Rebecca and Lauren and be like, we need to write these scenes. We need to write this scene. And so when Shailene turned up, suddenly there was like six, seven new scenes for the two of them to be doing together. Hmm. Um, and a very short uh, amount of time to prep what those conversations are. And she came in and was so centered and so confident with it and so, so, so like grounded. And she could do so much with so little because a lot of times she's the recipient of this information. But even that opening scene, it's like, I think that may have been the first scene we shot where he comes into the kitchen She's mm -hmm. like, go, you know, you know, well, go tell him, go post a video. Right, and, right, right, right. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much going on in that scene that's uh, that's that's so subtly like like restrained but strong. Right. Um, but the scene that really caught me off guard with her, ironically, is the scene at the end of the film with the hearing. Okay. She wasn't, she wasn't scripted to be in it, and she's there. We're shooting on the day, and I said, uh, "Hey, Shailene, do you mind?" sitting on the steps and just watching him do his testimony. Right. And as soon as she sat there, 
immediately it made a connection for Paul and her. He was yeah. constantly looking for her for support. She doesn't have a line in the whole scene. And then, you know, I go and I put the camera on her and the amount that she's doing without a line, like, like right. the amount that she's there for him and they go, going through the motions with the audience of the gravity of everything that he's saying and, and if it's landing. And then after that, we like played with a few lines at the end, which one was being like, you're a gangster, which you know, was hearkening back to that <laughs> opening moment. But again, not scripted. Um, That's incredible. Oh my gosh. This yeah, movie is such a series of like great moments like that. Yeah. And it's, it's you're, like working with such amazing talent, you can get the script and then you're always hunting for like, what are those little, those little gems on top that are going to take it to the next place, you know? Right. Um, and, and speaking to your screenwriters, I got a chance to interview them while I was up here in Toronto and uh, they described it in a way that I never even thought about, but now that they've said it, I can't not think about it. It's like an underdog sports movie yes where where the team members are never on the field at the same time <laughs> like and i no, never even think they, they don't cross paths you have so many main characters crazy, right? they never, they never, never cross paths. yeah they've never yeah. met but it very much has that, that structure all the way until the classic structure at the end with that testimony we get to go and visit every character watching you know and mm -hmm. that's a very classic sports structure so like mm -hmm. be able to revisit. So I knew like we would like uh, like with every character in every one of their locations, we wanted to grab them watching this testimony. Even like Anthony at the GameStop and you know wherever they were, it's like all right now we're going to grab this moment. It's, it's the end of the film, guys. So it's, and we read it to them. They also told me it was integral to get Anthony to dance. Yes. And that the TikTok dance contest was an actual thing that GameStop did. Isn't that crazy? Ten extra hours. It's like I know. It's like that's what's there. I absolutely love working with Rebecca and Lauren because they tend to work in a similar fashion as me. It's like they can be quick and fast and loose and spontaneous, and 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 react in you like in a very smart, thoughtful way. Which is, you know, I would say, hey, we got Anthony. Let's see him dance, and boom, they go back. They do their research. They find something that they can hang it on. And they and they just turn and they turn it around literally in within a day or two. Similar oh thing with Pete. I'm like, you know, can we get a scene with Pete and and Paul? Like it's like it's like with all of this coming down, like him being subpoenaed, we know that like the press were trying to get you know get at Kevin Gill as well. Can we see what you know what that would be that scene? And they go and do their research and find out that Kevin ran naked in college in a thunderstorm. And then they weave that into the, the, the narrative. And it's like, right. so there is a, you know, on top of the writing a beautiful script up front that has got such a complex layering of different storylines happening. Right. Like on the, on, you know, on the day as we're moving, like they can be so like, quick and spontaneous as well and come back, you know, and keep at a pace that was invigorating for the whole set. All right, you brought up the naked run twice now. I guess we're gonna have to dive into it. No, no body doubles for the naked run. I'm gonna assume. No body doubles. God bless them. God bless <laughs> those guys. The last, the last shot in, uh, in in our film in in New Jersey. We then went to LA for four days for Seth, but that was our last shot on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to send it off. Um, I'll get you out of here on this one because I'm running out of time. What can you tell me about the Chippendales project that you were working on that had to be sidelined in order to move to this? 
Um, it's tragically, it's just, you know, it's the nature of the business where it's like oftentimes multiple projects start happening at once and the TV show was announced and, you know, our finances got cold feet and, and backed mm-hmm. out. So I think it just, for that reason, it fell apart. Okay. Gotcha. Well, it sounded really interesting. I would love to have seen what you were able to do with it. And obviously I'm a huge fan of everything you've done up to this point. And uh, I'm super thrilled that this is getting the reaction that it deserves because it's really smart and funny and you have a terrific cast. So congratulations on this. I'm really happy to have you come on the podcast, Craig. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we want to thank Craig Gillespie for coming on the show and, of course, our friends at Sony Pictures Entertainment for getting him on here. Dumb Money is going to be um, platforming this week. It opens up in a, a few theaters, so make sure you check it out. It's going to open wide on September 29th. Uh, the other film that Craig worked on was Cruella uh, with Emma Stone, and that's why he and I had that conversation about him working with what I think are really strong female lead performances. Uh, and while this one is focused on Paul Dano, um, his wife is played by Shailene Woodley and she's mm. almost our surrogate into this story because she's learning about most of this stuff from him uh, as the story progresses. And you sort of feel her emotions about, is she invested in it? Which way is it going to go? And uh, I think that she's terrific. Obviously Craig is a huge fan of Shailene's as well too. So um, great ensemble cast as we talked about, and that sort of transitions us into our film of the week, which is a haunting in Venice. Um, Jake, you saw this, right? I did see, this is, yeah. So this is Hercule Poirot, uh, Kenneth Branagh adapting, but, but it's not a traditional Agatha Christie story. Is that correct? Or, or it was a short story. Maybe I'm, yeah, I'm not so it was, it was a, uh, it was a short story called Halloween party. Um, okay. but reading up on the actual short story itself doesn't really have any major similarities to, uh, the plot that's going on. Um, I, I like this movie. Uh, you know, it's. I feel like there's a um, th- there's a there's a low ceiling for me with with these films. You know, I obviously you know it's funny. There's a certain irony in the fact that like these type of of Agatha Christie mysteries are very much what inspired Ryan Johnson and the Knives Out films. Sure, but ironically, I prefer mm. the Ryan Johnson Knives Out films. Um, I liked Murder on the Orient Express. 
more than I thought I would. I, I, I liked it. Um, I did not like Death on the Nile. Yeah. I would say A Haunting in Venice is the best of the three. Yeah, mm. And I think that's because it plays very much into my wheelhouse of making it a little bit more spooky. It brings in uh, a, a sort of a ghost element, whether or not this, you know, the whole film takes place over the course of one night. Um, uh, Hercule is has has retired and is living in Venice, despite the fact that so many people want him to solve their mysteries because they have something going on in their lives. And he gets convinced by a friend of his, played by Tina Fey, who I think is supposed to be kind of a stand-in for Agatha Christie. She writes mystery novels. Oh, that's cool. Um, and uh, convinces him to come to a, a party that's taking place. And uh, when they get there, he learns a little bit uh, of, a, of a young girl who had died uh, a few years back and then a murder takes place at the actual party. So he's actually kind of solving simultaneous murders. There's obviously because it's a party, multiple people there. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I kind of was like, you know, working on trying to figure it out. And I can honestly tell you that if you are a fan of scary movies, uh, there are some legitimate actual scares okay uh there um you know it's it's a lot of a lot of attention has been paid for the fact that like the tone of this film because obviously if you've seen the other two films there's absolutely no supernatural element right to those films whatsoever i don't want to give too much away with this one but it's it's tiptoed around in here a a supernatural a potential ghost haunting element mm -hmm. uh it's I, I enjoyed it you know i think uh they were smart you know unlike you know, it, 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 it almost makes me wonder how much more people would have enjoyed Haunted Mansion if they had held on to it to, and released it into like later September, into the fall and October. Would people be more primed for it? Uh, I think maybe part of the reason that I liked this movie as much as I did is because like we're start, we're slowly my girlfriend and I are starting to watch more scary movies. We literally did a, a scary movie double feature last night. You know, we're kind of getting more into it. So I was a little bit more primed going in. Um, you know, I you know, it's if, if I were to give Murder on the Orient Express a seven. I'd give this one uh, a little bit of an edge and give it like a seven two point five. So like I don't I don't overly love this series. You know I think it has a little bit of a low ceiling for me. But I enjoyed it. I'm glad I saw it. Um, I, I I prefer the mysteries that that uh, Agatha has inspired more so than the I think the source material itself. I will say that if you enjoyed Kenneth Branagh's direction in Thor, which Kevin I know you did. Uh, he very much uses that type of direction. Yes, uh, the tilts in this one more so than he has in any of the other Agatha Christie mysteries that he's directed. Good. I very much feel like he leaned into and it very much works. I don't think it would have worked with the more straightforward mysteries with Nile and Orient Express, but with the sort of spooky element of, of the way he shoots Venice, the way he shoots the party, the way he shoots the supernatural element. It it just pairs very well. So in that sense, I will say I, I really enjoyed it. You know, is it is it going to be, you know, on my top 10 list? No, but I think, you know, it's funny. And, and this will, I think, work a, a transition as we go into Sean talking about Tiff. I think now the the danger of going into award season is I, my issue is sometimes I walk into every movie going like, OK, is this is this a top 10 contender? Is this, yeah. an, you know, and I think I need to remind myself, uh, as many of us do, that like sometimes a movie's just a movie. Sometimes it's it's just meant to be enjoyed and have sure. a good time. And it, it, you, you can't hold against you when the fact that a movie comes out at a time where so many like Oscar movie comes out. You know, sometimes a movie are just meant to be enjoyed. And I think that's what this movie is. couple this of things I found interesting real fast about mm -hmm. about this film. Sorry, Sean, um, mm -hmm. is well, one, I'm glad you brought up the Cantonese 
angles. Because I remember mm-hmm. sitting down with Kenneth Branagh for the first Thor movie, and we talked a lot about those angle choices because I thought they were really effective. And and like you know, the canted Dutch angle is a very effective tool from an immersive angle mm-hmm. in terms of creating anxiety. Like I think one of the best uses ever is obviously like, you know, with Carol Reed um, and the third man, which is, you know, an iconic, one of the greatest movies ever. Um, but the, the Dutch angles or the, or the, or the canted angles in that movie were iconic. And I know that Kenneth Branagh is a, a brand is a, is a, is a film person. He loves filmmaking. The thing I found really interesting about this one though, and I'm curious if it, it all was noticeable, Jake is the first two, Death in the Nile and Murder on the Royal Express were shot on 65 millimeter film. You went digital on this one. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't really know why. And because and again, I don't know. I haven't seen the film. I don't know if it's uh, to do with the idea of maybe being how, how much how much darkness is in the film in terms of like because it's a horror film aspect to it in terms of the lighting and everything like that. But I always find that darkness is looks better on film the grain like good time is one of my favorite movies that really shot in the dark with film and it looked great but i would love to talk to kenneth branagh about that choice because if you shoot your first two on 65 mil then you go digital on your third one your same dp you're in the same world i guess agatha christie Could it have world. Been a budget choice i, I was, I I was just about to I ask do you think, think it's so. because I, I would imagine um the stuff that takes place at the party in the house is probably a soundstage, but there is a lot of Venice exteriors like they shot on location in Venice. And I wonder mm-hmm. and I also believe that they did so uh, during covid. And so I wonder if it was a matter of time where he just mm-hmm. thought, look, we only have three days to get these Venice shots and we yeah. need them. And a lot of times it's easier and, and quicker to do a lot of those shots digitally than it is yeah. with film. I don't know. I because because my first thought was, wow, I'm impressed at how much they really shot uh, on location in Venice. Um, I as need opposed to, I need to go back to my um, interview with him for Murder on the Orient Express because he talked a lot about shooting on 65 mil. I, I, I just I'm just curious if anybody listening to this knows or has any idea or insight into this because we didn't have it. We didn't get the chance to talk to Kenneth Branner for this. If we did, we would ask him a lot of Oppenheimer questions, but, um, but I genuinely think that uh, I'm just curious as to why he made that choice and how different uh, it looks on screen. Cause I saw the first two. So I'm curious. I wonder if at any point this was considered to be <clears throat> just a Disney plus play. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Did, did death in the Nile do well, uh, I was actually I was just wondering. Uh, yeah, about I know because- but here's how here's what I can tell you. I've had a lot of people. I don't think we've discussed this. A lot of people reaching out to me about this movie, asking about this movie without knowing or understanding that it is the third part of a series. I, th- I right. think they're smart in releasing it when they are and playing up the the haunted aspect of it. I think I think they're playing this very well, how they're doing it, because I, I know a lot of people. They're like, oh, what's that? What's that new horror movie? coming out and i'm like oh the exorcist or or you know what they're like no the, the the one with the people in the house and the murder i'm like oh like a haunting in venice like did yeah. you see the other two and like oh i didn't know there were, i didn't know there were other two yeah it's a good it's a good point murder did 352 million and death in the nile did 137 million Yikes. that's a gigantic drop but yes. i think jake's right i think the point of it is that it doesn't you don't have yeah. to see the other two it sounds like and you don't even have to be aware of the well, other two to Death Enjoy on the Nile had had the Army Hammer factor. And I also want to mm-hmm. say, did it come out during the pandemic? It did. Did they try was, to release it during the pandemic? I think it was 2022. So, yeah. So it would that have might been counted against it. True. Yeah. Good yeah. point. Yeah. That also, it just wasn't good. There's also that. Um, it, Jake, if people are looking for something scary at the moment uh, and they have that or the nun two, which you're sending them to. Uh, I would say probably as a whole. 
Haunting at Venice is better. Mm. I really, really liked the first two thirds mm. of the Nun Two. I thought it. I thought there were some legitimate, real scares. Yeah. I thought it was beautifully shot. I thought there were some. There were some shots in there where I was like, "Ooh, that's giving me Exorcist vibes." Like just mm. the, its use of light oh, and shadow with, with with the bag. Yes, yeah. I, there's yeah. a sequence, and Kevin, I know you like this. There's a sequence involving uh, magazines on a shelf. That's an it was really it cool. Great. Uh, there's, <laughs> cool a, there's, there's a there's a sequence involving a ball rolling out of the darkness that's very effective. And then as if they seem to like forget what made the first two acts effective, they just go full blown CGI crazy action sequence and and just they lose all goodwill. Because you remember, like, I don't know why they don't use the conjuring as as a rope. Like the final act of the conjuring is a woman tied to a chair in a basement like mm-hmm. that's and it's fantastic like that's that's all you need and that's and that fit the tone of what the rest of the movie was i don't know why they feel the need to go full-blown cgi monster in the final mm-hmm. act i mean that's not what these movies are so i was Even so Annabelle. disappointed the Annabelle yeah, movies yeah. are small they're, scale. they're quiet they're small they're intimate yeah. it's what makes the scares work and it just completely shit the bed in the in the last act which is Mm. all the more disappointing because the first two acts i think are really really strong what's mind-blowing to me is that this is the ninth film in the conjuring universe Mm -hmm. and these films have made over (laughs) 2.1 billion dollars like you're talking if you put all nine of them together they've made almost 2.3 or 2.2 billion dollars at the box office and like i mean the the budgets can be that high like if you add up all the budgets it wouldn't surprise me if it's less than 200 million I'm sure right. it is. And the, the first nun made like $370 yeah. million dollars or I something like that. I was shocked when I looked up those that nun Huge. box office. Huge. You could probably make um, like seven Conjuring movies for the cost for James Wan to make one Aquaman film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. yeah, and I'd almost rather get the seven Aquaman, uh, seven <laughs> Conjuring films. Um, all right, so uh, I wanted to open up the floor to a Toronto uh, recap, essentially. And uh, I want you guys to be able to ask questions about what you were hearing from the outside, if there's any sort of titles that you're interested in learning about. But I'll start by just sort of telling you guys about what uh, is my favorite film as a takeaway. And it wasn't one that I was anticipating to be one of my favorite films. And that's Dream Scenario uh, starring Nicolas Cage. It's an A24 film. to see this. The premise of this, it sounds incredible. All right. So I'll set it up for everybody. I believe it's going to open in November. Uh, I looked ahead to see when it was coming. And Cage is able to do press for it because A24 is one of the uh, distributors that has agreed to a settlement with um with the studio system. So it, this is <laughs> a very strange movie uh, and it harkens back to Cage in his sort of adaptation days where Marvel. he loses himself completely in a character because I feel like even in like unbearable weightness of being uh, and well, I mean, like, I I mean, he's still like Dracula in, in Renfield and things like that. But I still feel like when you see those parts, it's Nick Cage, right? Like you you still see it's it's Cage doing this here. He doesn't look like Nick Cage at all. He doesn't act like Nick Cage at all. He's a college professor who's um, kind of neurotic, uh, is really uncertain about where he stands in his family dynamic. He has a, a wife and two daughters who essentially do not. And they have zero interest in him whatsoever. He's he's the closest thing to invisible that you can imagine this poor college professor having to be. His students don't pay attention to him when he's giving lectures. Uh, He's ignored at home. 
And then all of a sudden, for reasons that are not given in the film at all, and, and all of this is premise, this is all set up. I'm not giving anything away uh, for reasons that he can't figure out. People start coming up to him and saying, uh, you know, you were in my dream last night uh, and it starts really small. It starts with like a student who is kind of like whispering to a, a, a another student in a lecture hall. And when he goes, oh, what's so important? You have to disrupt my lecture. And they go, oh, you were I had a dream about you last night. It was weird. You showed up in my dream. Um, and he's kind of bothered by the fact that in the dreams, he's very passive. Like there will be really weird stuff happening in these people's dreams, but he's not interacting in any, in any sort he, of way. Do they like, show the dreams? Yes, they do. Like as oh. the people are describing, he'll be like, what happened in the dream? I don't understand. So she'll be like this one girl will be like, I'm getting chased by a serial killer. And they'll quick show that like she's running through a hallway and there's a, a tall, bloody serial killer who's coming <laughs> down the hallway. And then like Nick Cage in his, you know, buff, puffy jacket just sort of walks out. And the, the girl will be like, uh, you get over here. We have to hide. We have to hide. And he's just like, what's going on? How you doing? Like, he's really like not plugged into what's happening in the dream. And it starts to bother him that he's not interacting with people in the dream. But then everywhere he goes, he's met by more people who are like, oh, my God, I had a dream about you. And <laughs> that's the launch point for where this story goes. It's somebody who becomes overnight famous for just suddenly appearing in everyone's dreams. And it's like, like, the, like an inception. Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah, it becomes years, a little inception. Years, yeah. It becomes a little Nightmare on Elm Street. It becomes a lot of being John Malkovich because. Oh, yes. Yeah, sold. There's an advertiser uh, played by Michael Sarah who says, you're the most marketable person on the planet. You can speak to people when they're sleeping. Like that's <laughs> the entire population. If I he goes, <laughs> there's this whole bit where like, well, I, I'm sorry, I'll keep it out. I'll keep it out because that's giving way too much. But all you need to know is that Cage is as dialed in as I've seen Nick Cage in a really long time to a premise <laughs> that he described the script as being one of the five most perfect scripts uh, that he's ever read. And the other ones that include, I can't think of all of them, but I, I know adaptation was one of them. And Face Leaving off. Las Vegas was one of them. Face off is not one of them. Unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but it, and, and it backs it up. It's called dream scenario. It's called, it's from a 24 it's produced by uh, Ari Aster and it's not quite Bo is afraid, but it's it's God, I hope not. No, it's not. It's far more accessible than Bo is afraid. But it's it's strange in that way that like you see things happening on screen where you're just like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> that's pretty insane. So uh, that's my big recommendation. Dream scenario. And um, and then the worst thing I saw up there, which is a film that I'm convinced is not even going to get released. Uh, and it's Chris Pine's directorial debut. And it's called Pool Man. Why would it not get released? It hasn't been purchased by anybody yet. There's a number of titles that went up to Toronto this year, including Anna Kendrick's movie, uh, which I do want to talk about, called Woman which, of the Hour. Which was bought by Netflix, I believe. Okay, for 11 so million. Was, was it really? Okay, yeah, that's Netflix, fantastic. I don't know who the source is on that, but I read that on Twitter the other day. I, I will reconfirm that, but I think Netflix paid $11 million for it. And then Michael Keaton that's had a number movie I saw, there Kevin. Okay. called Michael Keaton had a movie up there called Knox Goes Away about a contract killer who is diagnosed with a rapid form of Alzheimer's and he has to put all of his loose ends to bed before he completely loses his memory. Wow. It's like a mix of memento and heat. Um, wow. Yeah, it was really good. What's but that called? It's called Knox goes away. 
Um, mm. And it's because he keeps telling all the people in his life as he's trying to settle all of his past debts. They're like, why are you cashing out now? What's your story? And he goes, I'm going away kind of thing. But what he means is his memory is fading away and he can't remember specific details about his life and how quickly can he get all of this stuff resolved before he completely loses uh, his his track. But that one, I think it might have gotten picked up. That one and a Kendrick's movie, Chris Pine's movie, they all went into the Toronto Film Festival without distribution deals. Like it was it felt very Sundancey because that's what you kind of hear at, at Sundance. These movies come out and then, you know, studios or streaming services bid on them. The reception for, for Pullman is so bad. What is I'm about? not quite sure if anyone's going to pick it up. And OK, he directed it, right? Chris Pine directed it. He um, they described it. Stacy Sure, who's like a big time producer, you know, worked with Tarantino oh, yeah. and um, she, I think she's responsible for this as well, too, because she came out and introduced it in in the sense of like, hey, Chris can't be here because of the strike kind of thing. But we're really excited about it. This is his love letter to Los Angeles. And <laughs> she told us that it was a character that he has created with his writing partner. Um, and he was pitching it back and forth to Patty Jenkins while they were making Wonder Woman 1984. And Patty Jenkins is also an executive producer on it as well, too. So so people just gave him money to make this movie about a pool man that. It takes place in Los Angeles. I don't know what time it's deliberately like it looks like it could be the 1940s. Um, it looks like it could be the 1960s. But then, like, he'll meet a girl who is dressed like she's from the 40s, but then she'll say in conversation, oh, the closest I got to fame was a three-act um, episode arc that I had on Bones that didn't go anywhere. So then you're like, oh, wait, what? This is, that's modern sort of thing? And, like, people will, will will drop references to things that are very clearly, but, like, you don't know where it is in the time period. Hmm. So he's, it, it, going into it, it was described to me as the Big Lebowski meets Chinatown. Um, because he's kind of like the dude, but not really like he's trying to do a version of the dude. But he's he's just an extremely optimistic guy um, who takes a very positive spin on everything in his life. And he's adamant about going to these um, city council meetings to try to push ideas that he has about like a trolley system through Los Angeles or cleaning up the bus system. Um, and then when he goes back home, he lives in a camper that's in front of the pool and he's just dedicated to keeping the pool as clean as possible. And in a very Chinatown sort of way, a femme fatale shows up at his doorstep and tells him that the city council members that he's constantly going to are corrupt and they're behind this scandal that's keeping water from reaching the downtown area, uh, that there's a drought happening in in, in um, the downtown Los Angeles area. But there's a thriving uh, pecan and walnut farmer who's, you know, has this incredible crop. And, and that's where they think all the water is going to. So then this kind of burnout, hippie, optimistic guy has to solve the, the crime of what's going on with the water supply. And on that premise alone, I was in. I yeah, mean, that sounds, that sounds amazing. I want to see Chris Pine do that. But the energy in it is one of those like erratic. Everyone's talking over each other. His he has two. I thought it was his parents for a little while, but then it turns out it's just like crew members that have worked with him over the years. They're called Jack and Diane. They're played by Danny DeVito and Annette Benning. And whenever Jack he's with them. Yeah, exactly. Um, whenever he keeps meeting up with them, 
their conversations are just sort of like crashing over each other. And it's it's very nervous energy type thing where everybody's trying to figure out what everyone else is doing and no one's really on the same page. And it's that way throughout the whole. OK, uh, here's another movie that I can compare it to that I think you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from. Do you remember how confused you were watching Inherent Vice? Yeah, it's a lot like that. OK, but not but not done nearly as well as Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> um, I'm just it's surprised like, how I do surprised I the reaction. The people are like like brutally reacting to this film, like in a very negative way. Like I have I, the, the, the thoughts that I've seen on this film. I mean, intrigue me, but I, I just don't understand. Is it is it is it a tonal issue? Is it, is yes. it just it, it just doesn't it doesn't know what it wants to be completely um mm. it wants to do like he'll do this thing where he falls into his pool and he sits kind of zen style and wants to sort of meditate and when he meditates he'll um be greeted by this giant lizard who tells him like you need to remember the tree kind of thing and then he'll wake up out of the meditation and, and he'll start to talk to somebody. He's like, the lizard's telling me about the tree, but I don't know what. It, and then they're not paying attention. It, it's really it's a bad, bad script. Um, and it's executed poorly. It's a wow. he, it was my biggest disappointment. Um, I, I didn't pay attention. I know they did credit him and his writing partner as like an idea by kind of thing. Mm. Um, so it's not based on anything. And after a while, it just becomes a straight up Chinatown ripoff. To the point where there's like a very significant uh, turn somewhere in the story that involves a family relationship. No, that if you I, th- I think we're giving away too much on this one. You think so? All right, I'll yeah. stop. But I'm saying yeah, if yeah. you know that about. I, honestly, I was, was going to make a joke about like yeah. my sister. My mother, my sister. My there's mother. too I mean, many. Yeah. He, there's did, too he, did, many. he did write it. He did write it. Uh, oh, he the did. Writing, well, according to IMDb, it's 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 credited to Ian Gult, uh, Ian Gottler and Chris Pine. And Ian Gottler is his writing partner is essentially his writing and producing partner. So, all right, I'll stop there. That was my, my biggest disappointment. Uh, Some of the other things I saw up there, I saw Flora and son. I saw um, woman of the hour, which is Anna Kendrick's film. So Uh, it's an anatomy of a story. All right. So which one do you guys want to talk about? Which one are you guys most curious about? Yeah. Yeah, That story is unbelievable. So woman of the hour is Anna Kendrick's directorial debut and she knocks it out of the park. Like I am extremely excited to see what she does as a director moving forward. It's set in the 1970s. Um, the story, I'll give you the premise. There's a serial killer who is, um, who has been stalking, uh, women throughout California, um, by essentially posing as a photographer, getting them to potentially become models for him and then bringing him out to the desert, you know, photographing them and then brutally killing them. And the movie opens with a, a, a murder scene that is not nearly as bad as the Zodiac in the park, but not that far off uh, from it. So Anna wow. Kendrick is like statement. That's a bold statement. But she's setting the tone immediately. They're like, I'm not pulling any punches. And this guy is really dangerous. Right. Mm. Then it transitions to her character and she's an actress trying to make it in Hollywood. And she in the 1970s is just running into the most stereotypical sexist um, reactions to men who are running the film industry, who are reacting to her as an actress, trying to make it through auditions and trying to get roles. And she keeps figuring out that she's having a really difficult time, you know, progressing in the in the industry and getting a job. 
she finally gets a, a job offer from her agent to be a contestant on the dating game. And this actually happened in real life. The time that she was a contestant, that she was the, the girl who was meeting the three bachelors. One of those three bachelors was the serial killer who was in between this this wave of crimes that he was committing silently. And you kind of find out after a while that he gets, you know, uh, connected to, I believe it was 20 or 30 murders, but they believe that it could have been as many as 130 over the course of his time. Um, and it becomes this uh, a, a dynamic play between. And if you watch the dating game, like my takeaway from this movie is how did the dating game ever become a show that we had? Cause it's just these really grotesque, um, you know, men making sexual innuendo to try to get a date with the, the girl who's on the game show kind of thing. And it's just gross. Like it's really <laughs> offensive what we allowed to happen in the 1970s. And uh, but this guy was the most charming of the three bachelors kind of thing, um, because he was used to luring women uh, under his umbrella and, you know, getting him out to these places where he could he could commit these awful crimes. And she has this like scalpel precision approach to how awful men are and how apologetic um, women had to be at that time. If it seemed like they were crossing a line kind of thing to stand up for themselves, you know, and that, and, and the point that she's ultimately trying to make is that in some situations it's life or death, you know, like she, how, how does she have to put up with this guy who's a game show contestant, but nobody knows that he's a serial killer, but we know, you know, and so there's this all tension about how it plays out. And again, that's just kind of scratching the surface about places where this movie goes, but she is a terrific director. She's been paying attention to everybody that she's worked with. And, um, so Netflix picked that up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a shame. Cause I, I, I hope that they let it go to theaters because she shoots it beautifully. There's a lot of like outdoor desert shots um, of this guy when he's with his victims, the stuff from like the period detail from the dating game type stuff is phenomenal. Um, it's a great, great movie. It's called woman of the hour. And essentially that was the name of the girl who was uh, the contestant on the dating the, the dating show before they introduced him? They were like, "Who is the woman of the hour?" Kind of thing, and it's just gross. Oh, for, forgive me if you already answered this. Is, is she in it? Does she star in she's it? She's the girl. Yeah, she's she's the girl. The girl. Got it. Okay. She's the girl. Um, and so and does a terrific job of like giving a terrific performance in that part. Well, she's and a great still, actor. Yeah, but still like focusing on on being the director of that piece. Yeah. You know, a lot of times you'll see a director will put themselves in a bit of a part and then they'll disappear so they yeah. can focus on everything else that's going on. I was incredibly impressed uh, that's awesome. by her. So, I guess I mean, my, one of my questions I have for you is, is just what the vibe at the, um, cause we've all been lucky enough to be at Toronto and it could be a really exciting time because for a lot of people, it's sort of the starting gun for the award season as we, as yeah. we head into, you know, but you know, there's it's such a weird kind of downtime in the industry right now. And there's such a divide uh, between, you know, for, for so many people for, you know, between different sides here. Um, so I'm guess, or just sort of curious what the what the and you know, and it, it's usually such a star, you know, packed. I mean, how many times have, you know, but, you know, we've all interviewed, you know, Gaga and Clooney and Hop, you know, like we've all interviewed Clint every Eastwood. major star. Yeah. And in, in, yeah. in Toronto. Um, but obviously I mean, they're not there. One of our favorite stories that Jake and I have, uh, like you literally run into people uh, yeah. at all places. Jake, yeah, Jake and I. Oh, my God. That's another great one. Jake and, I, Jake and I were literally in the lobby of a hotel and 
a, any A-list actor you could have imagined was walking through that hotel, and then I see yeah. Deacons' hair when he comes out of an elevator. I'm like, Deacons! <laughs> like, but no, one of the best stories ever, though, going back to the Nicolas Cage thing for for a oh, second. Okay. Was, I told this, told this before, but Jake and I were basically in a, in, a, in a restaurant eating lunch, and Nicolas Cage was doing an interview right next to us, and I tried to take a picture to send to the Real Blend group. Oh, I've said yeah. this before. Oh, my God. I'm and my, my flash went off, and it was one of the darkest. <laughs> not, not, not just bars. your flash, but also the like chick chick of like the yeah. sound effect on the phone. And the and the bar was like super dark. Oh my god! And he clearly saw it. But Nick Cage is so cool <laughs> that that later he took a photo with Jake and I. Anyways, the, to, to Jake's point though, it, it is a very casually star studded event. And yeah. I to Jake's question, I'm actually curious as well exactly what the vibe was because now. There are some stars who are allowed to be there. Obviously, there and, and we Nick discussed Cage this in the show. Uh, mm-hmm. There, you know, if you're not familiar, that we Sean uh, highlighted it briefly earlier. There are some studios that have these interim agreements where they can still promote that they've met the obligations and the deals that they're supposed to meet or they're they're, they're trying to meet. So there were some stars there. I know Nickelback was there. I know like, uh, yes. uh, but but like Anna Kendrick, for example, could not be there, right? Couldn't because go. she right. because she acts in the film, and that's why I like going forward this year like killers of the flower moon that comes out october 20th whereas it's september 13th right now theoretically if we're still in the pandemic or if we're still in the strike um what scorsese could do press sure but yeah that's but, about but it dicaprio and the rest of them can't yeah it's weird it's confusing because there are a lot of situations where like with bradley cooper and the maestro he's the director of it and dga has a deal but he's also the um, star. Uh, the star of it. So could he technically do press as a director and not refer to the acting? So I I I think maybe he could, but but most people are deciding it's just too sticky of a situation, and they're yeah. uh, deciding to. Um, because I, I think, that's, uh, yeah, like, I think Kendrick, there's a lot of technical, like technically you could, like technically you can. I think it comes down to what it represents you know there's a lot of talk being being had right now about talk show hosts who are technically sure you can you can do your show without writers sure but what does that say and i think you know there's uh, you know i think you know i I spoke recently with a a writer director who technically could do press for something as a director but out of solidarity for the WGA, he has told me he's not going to. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's you know, I think there are a lot of technicalities where if you really wanted to, you could. But you just have to question what this oh, what this means. I'll give you another example. There's a there was a midnight movie up there that I didn't get a chance to see, but I wanted to called Hell of a Summer. Um, and it stars Finn oh, Wolfhard. Finn Wolfhard directed yeah. that movie. Yes, he did. And yeah, he stars in that. it. And he, he was up there doing press for it. But. And it's very possible. I don't know 100 percent, but it's very possible that the, his d- distributor might have an interim deal. Right. Let me see who the distributor is on that. But Joe Public doesn't know that. And sooner or later, Joe Public sees, you know, Finn Wolfhard promoting that movie or Nick Cage right. promoting Dream Scenario. And they're allowed to. But I think Joe Public thinks like, well, are you crossing the picket line or yeah. or how serious how serious is the strike if some of you guys are going out and doing press? Now, uh, again, there's people who are within their rights to go and promote it because of, of workouts that have been agreed to. But I think that that creates confusion in the marketplace for people yeah. who do not pay as close attention to this as even we do, because we pay close attention on a daily basis. And right. we're not even 100 percent sure most of the yeah, time right. of like, who I, can I, do I this. I got an email today and I won't say where it came from, but like 
Jake and I both got an email today about a press junket with actors doing yeah. press, and it's yeah. through a studio that has I'm reached doing, an um, interim I'm agreement. Interviewing yeah. the star of It Lives Inside on Friday, okay. and and it's a neon film, mm-hmm. so she can do press. Like it, it, at first, it sort of really yeah. threw me off, and I was like, "Oh wait, no, neon." Which you know, it's it's uh, other- it's an interesting time. The other weird part about it, like the other day, I because uh, uh, Ben Schwartz is coming to D.C., so I, we, we hopped on like a Zoom call. He's WGA and SAG. Okay. <laughs> so and so it was just really weird talking to him. Like we could talk about his comedy show and his mm-hmm. improv show, but we couldn't at all mention anything he had been in. Sonic, mm-hmm. Parks and Rec, none of that. And like like to, even today, I interviewed Kevin Bacon because Bacon's coming to D.C. Uh, with his brother. Uh, they're playing at the Birchmere in Alexandria. Bacon Brothers. Yeah, Bacon Brothers, right. Yeah. And it was great. It was Michael and, and Kevin. And, and what was cool about it, and Jake's mentioned this on the show before, you can kind of flex Lettuce a different muscle. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you could talk a little <laughs> bit more about, uh, <laughs> about other things. <laughs> I love the BLT. I know, I love BLT. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but even getting his perspective on the strike was interesting. But again, like even before, like you can't talk to Kevin Bacon about what you would want to talk to Kevin Bacon Dude, about. Kevin, it was weird. This, I've, I've got an interview next week that I feel like you would both love and would drive you crazy. It is a paired interview with Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul. Oh, for my God. Breaking for, Bad. Oh, for, for, for Dos Hombres. They're, they're coming to Chicago for this like Dos Hombres like private dinner. Yeah. And. They're giving me they're doing 15 minutes, but they're also like, don't like we're not joking. They can't don't ask about Breaking Bad, which, you know. Well, so to answer your initial question of what was Tiff like (laughs) in light of all this, (laughs) we came to refer to it up there as Diet Tiff because you had you had movies. But there's quite often when you're up there with a full schedule you end up dropping screenings because you get an interview opportunity or, you know, you can't run from one to the next and still fit in some stuff. Um, But if you even just look back to last year, like I was looking at some videos that popped up on my timeline of like, hey, this was your memory from last year. And it was the Fableman's cast uh, mm-hmm. and Spielberg coming out, you know, for a post screening Q&A and the and the, the applause and the, the, that stuff just wasn't there. And so it became a little bit easier to get seats at things like Princess of Wales or Royal Alexandra. Or when I went to the Nickelback documentary, when we first got there at Roy Thompson, it was empty, empty. Um, and it filled in eventually, but it wasn't like uh, there are times when we've gone to Roy Thompson in order to go see one of the the premieres. And that line is wrapped around the block, yeah. you know, sometimes twice to get into it. So I think the interest from Joe public in order to, um, participate in the festival just wasn't there this year. And even when I went into something like Anatomy of a Fall, which was a high profile title, there were seats around me. Like I didn't have people packed up against me. It was not, uh, it was labeled a sold out show, but you were able to get into stuff. And Sean, the absence of interviews hurt. And I missed you guys. Honestly, it wasn't the same without you guys up there. So. And we, I know because our show technically started there. Did Chad Kroger at all talk about his favorite Robert Zemeckis film when he was doing press for the movie? Wait, hold on. <laughs> this is pretty I'm, easy, I'm, I'm really re- I'm really realizing my lack of. Oh, uh, is it Nickel Back to the Future? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was trying to think of like, like I was trying to think of like songs like photographs too. Yeah. 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 Right. Well done. Well done. And his um, favorite uh, Mark Wahlberg movies, Rockstar, which is, this uh, is I actually like Rockstar. 
I never heard that song before. They were talking did, about how it's like one of their most popular songs. Did he, did, 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 he, did he also talk about his favorite Robin Williams film? One hour photograph? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Okay. You can do this all day. I will, <laughs> I will say there was that area of um, King Street where it becomes like the festival row sort of thing right mm. in front of Tiff Bell Lightbox. And then they have that stage set up where they often have music. And Nickelback did a free concert down there. And it was like, don't go anywhere near that area. It was jam packed with people like they're yeah. huge in Canada. Oh, dude. Well, the whole bit about Nickelback is that apparently, well, I guess this is what the documentary is about, is that apparently everyone hates Nickelback, but yet they're one of the biggest bands on the planet. And it's yes. like there's like this there's like this almost joking vibe that when you mention Nickelback, like it's like ha, 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 yeah, Nickelback, whatever. which is because like, <laughs> which is like uh, why it was the whole thing was just so false. Like, I think it, right. it's like, like, I, I guess like I don't hate Nickel. Like, well, I, I fine. Yeah. They're, like, they're actually they're passable. I, I, I hate Creed. Like I think Creed is really oh, generic. See, <laughs> dude, my own prison. That whole first Creed record was amazing. See, it's funny because like when I I, I kind of put Nickelback in the in a category. And, here, and let me clarify this before because I know people are gonna be like, "What are you talking about?" Foo Fighters. I think Foo Fighters are a better talking. Here's the point point I'm making. Foo Fighters are a much, in my opinion, a much better band than Nickelback, but they're both just great rock bands. But for some reason, Nickelback just gets so much hate. I'm assuming this is what the doc's about. Yeah, Um, but you know what the problem is? And Jake mentions this every single time. It's a documentary done with the support of the band. So it's not a. But I kind of find that interesting, though. But 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 isn't the isn't the again, I haven't seen it, but if it's about the hatred towards the band, I'm cool with the band being in uh, uh, involved because I I would want to hear their perspective. They should be interviewed, but they should have nothing to do with the behind the scenes editing or I I think it should be like, listen, do that. We're we're making this. I I feel like if they're out there promoting it, they must. Well, I'll tell you. No, I'll tell you this much. They do get interviewed about why they're hated, okay. but, th- but their answer to it in a nutshell, it's a little more complicated than that. But their their answer is kind of, hey, we don't know. Like, I'm still sh-. the lead singer says, I still show up to a concert venue and there's twenty five thousand people who want to hear me sing Nickelback right. songs. So I'm doing something right. And he's like, if that's the, the, the best case scenario, then then I'll just keep doing this and people can hate me all they want. But he'll say something along the lines of this, which I felt was such an insult. His biggest complaint is that when he walks down the street, because he's the face of Nickelback, that he has to endure people rolling down uh, their windows and screaming <laughs> like Nickelback sucks. Right. Because Chad Kroger has a kind of look about him mm-hmm. and he'll say to the other guys in the band, you guys have the ability to just kind of disappear. Like when we're not Nickelback, you're just regular dudes. <laughs> but I'm Chad Kroger and I'm the face of Nickelback. That sounds like, very I'm similar to like the, the, the Jason. I was going to say the Jason Lee thing in Almost Famous when uh, when like remember he gets pissed at like when they do the T-shirts and everyone's <laughs> in shadows except yeah. Billy Crudup. Yeah. And Jason Lee's pissed because he's like the lead singer of, of yeah, uh, Stillwater. Yeah. I just want to know if Chad if Chad Kroger ever shops at like 
Whole Kroger? Foods or Wegmans. Kroger? Kroger. Kroger. Yeah. Well, no, Kroger. The joke I, is Kroger, Kevin. No, no. The, uh, that was the joke was that I wasn't going to use Kroger <laughs> and like I was going to use other grocery stores. Yeah. yeah but anyways. he he makes wait, that wait, complaint. Sean, and don't forget, he they did a song for, uh, didn't they do a song for Spider-Man? Hero. They did Hero. Hero. Yes. And that's the thing. Like, they tell their story and there's nothing original about their story. It is every other Feels like a movie. band's it's every other rock band story. They incessantly tour at the beginning to try to get a name for themselves. They sign on a label because one guy believes in them and they are churning out original songs. They really are They They write these tunes um, and then hero. And this is how you remind me hit at the exact same time. And then all of a sudden they're just nickelback and that's who they are for the rest of their lives. They don't really have that much adversity. Um, and there are a couple of things that happen within the band, but like, it's Canadian called hate to love. Nice. Hate, hate to, to love, love. Nickelback. And yeah. Do they? Uh, I, I think I read this somewhere. Do they go into it all about why they're called Nickelback? No, uh, I don't think I, they do. I, I genuinely, I remember hearing some. Uh, again, you never know what you hear. Anyways, I'm fascinated by that because no, they. they but they're, 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 they paid for Aaron Rodgers, but they gave him 30, uh, 30 cents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, in, in all honesty, though, I think this is a fascinating subject. I'm actually very curious to see this because because based on the way you're describing it, there is this like it's a strange thing is a strange undertone of hatred toward that band yep. that has become almost like like a commonality between people. When you hear Nickelback, everyone's like, it's almost like you're in on the joke. Yeah. But then when Chad says he goes out there and 25,000 people are out there every night, that is an interesting juxtaposition that I don't Absolutely. understand. And yeah. if the doc, if the doc covers that and gives answers to it, I I'm interested in seeing it. I I am actually interested in knowing why people hate Nickelback so much. I just don't get well, it. I'm not sure I mean, that this doc will great. give you the answer. I'm not sure it'll give you the answer. Leave your answer in the comments. Yeah, they're, yes, they're, please. They're a passable rock band. Like they're not Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters is is one of the greatest bands out there right now, and they're you know they're in the same genre. And I'm I'm actually going to see them on Tuesday with my brother. I'm excited. That's um, gonna be so great. But, and I just read Dave Grohl's book, a recommendation out there. If anybody oh, wants I have to read it, it is I, one of the I best books I've pile. ever read. Like yep. listening, I recommend the audible because he narrates the whole book. Oh, that's cool. And like hearing him walk you through the Kirk Cobain stuff. Anyways, I know we're getting off track here, but that's one of the movies I'm fascinated in. in, in. Now, wait, did you see Alexander Payne's um, The Holdovers? I did see The Holdovers. Yeah, let's, how, talk, about how that. Is let's that? talk about Holdovers Whoa. really fast. And then we'll and then we'll. That's a um, big movie. Not to wrap it up. Not to mention. Yeah, um, it's Uh-oh. it's very good, but it is it is ex- it is exactly what the trailer promises. OK, um, I mean, it he shoots it beautifully. Um, it's set in this uh, New England private school in the 1970s. He shoots it to a way in a way that it legitimately looks like someone found a canister of film yep. somewhere threaded it through the projector and they found this movie that that had been filmed back in the day and, and that's how the trailer no, feels to us dude and, when I the mean, trailer ends and you have paul giamatti's face with his mouth open and they have the holdovers yeah, logo and, it's yeah. like, and, it, and then the logo is shaking yeah. like it's on a film stock it's really it, i was hoping that so they would play with that they get all of that down to a t cool um and giamatti is terrific and the kid who's opposite him is great I just thought that maybe it was hiding something underneath that that hadn't been hinted at in the trailer, mm. but it's legitimately just this curmudgeon teacher um, who has to watch over these kids over the break, and he gets to know this one kid who he thinks is an outcast, and 
and they could become closer as a family. And it's there, there are kind of really beautiful and tender moments throughout it. But I was waiting for like another shoe to drop of being like, oh, this is the thing. Um, and it, it it never necessarily comes, but there's plenty of stuff to like in it. I'd say it's a to me, it's a very strong four out of five. I would not be surprised if it made it into the Oscar race. It feels like an Academy type picture who like I'm not sure Alexander Payne's going to get into the director conversation. Giamatti could very easily get uh, could get nominated. It's it's him at the top of his game, essentially. But he's not he's not necessarily doing anything that you haven't seen Paul Giamatti do before. Mm. Um, He's he's that sort of stuffy, uptight, um, you know, sideways type character. He's just doing it on the level of like the best of Giamatti kind of thing. Um, So I wasn't blown away by it, but I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. That depressed me when you guys asked me about like what was Tiff like? It did depress me that after every screening, when I got together in a group of critics, the immediate discussion was just like, all right, well, where is this going to fall? Is this picture? Is this, is this director? Is this, mm. this is maybe uh, I do not Coleman like Domingo for, for actor. Like it, it, you couldn't let's, have a conversation with anybody without coming out of each screening. You're like, all right, well, where is that going to play? Where is let's that? Let's just talk about the movie itself. Did, did you see Rustin? Is Rustin? No, play there? I didn't get a chance to see Rustin. It did play there. Yeah, but it was I opposite something astounding. else I was saying. Yeah. yeah, no, I know. Coleman Domingo had that and a movie called Sing Sing, Sing up Sing. there, which also yeah. sounds like it was going to be really good. And I think of the two, not to break it on the Oscars again, but I've heard that Rustin is the play and, and Sing Sing will, will not. You literally be. just did the thing that you said did. you hated. Yeah. No, I totally did. No, I really did. I know. I'm an awful person. Um, <laughs> all right. Here is your uh, call to action. We got to land this plane. Uh, go down in the comments and let us know why you think Nickelback Don't forget we've hated. been doing the show. I know. I, I, I honestly have had, I had so many questions for Sean because and again, and Sean makes a point like Jake, Sean and I have spent the past 10 years or so together at these yeah. at this festival. It's like it's be, and especially with our show now, it is it's like I felt like during the show right now that we're recording, I was like. I was kind of like, Sean, tell me, tell me what I missed. <laughs> like, like bring me. Cause like, cause like, you know, it was weird seeing all the tweets and, and, and people getting out of these movies. But it, as you mentioned, it sounded like diet tiff, but still I just, uh, there's so many films that you saw that won't come out for a while. Yeah. And, um, but then to your point, like we were talking about this, maybe on the show or maybe off the show, like Venice had a bunch of titles that didn't go to tiff. Yeah. Um, that I anticipated Ferrari. being there. Yeah. Tell you, yeah. Ryan. Um, Telluride had a couple of films that, that didn't make it to TIFF. So for some reason, TIFF was just a little bit off this year. Um, yeah, why, in terms why of their the programming. And... So I See, have to coming to this... Chicago International Film Festival, baby. The killer yeah. wasn't there. Ferrari wasn't there. Um, Weird. Uh, uh, Coppola, Sofia Coppola's movie about um, Priscilla, Priscilla, Priscilla Presley. Yeah. That wasn't there. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine who I think nailed it. They got their reviews out of Venice, right? So all they were going to get were more reviews. Mm. Um, they they couldn't bring talent, so it wasn't worth bringing the movies to Toronto after that. Um, if they wanted reviews from the people who were going to be at TIFF, it's cheaper, I guess, for the studio to just do New York and L.A. screenings for the movies without having to go through. I mean, to me, I think you're you're pissing off tiff a little bit or or burning a little bit of a bridge with them mm. um and the festival might not want to work with them but but tiff is in a tough spot because they're third on that list uh in terms of time frame you know venice and telluride have a have a jump on them and um unless they have a, a great relationship with the director that says no i want my movie to premiere at tiff oh taika's movie was up there uh, oh, next goal bad. wins 
I, heard I just heard really it was bad. described as a Disney Plus movie. That's it. Fast it's Bender. A, yeah, Fastbender and I, this kind of underdog soccer movie. I was also surprised that Universal. I know we gotta get out of here, but I was surprised that Universal didn't take advantage of the Dunkirk situation that they did with Nolan and use Oppenheimer because. Uh, Dunkirk came out, I think, July 21st. Oppenheimer came out July 21st. But at TIFF, the year Dunkirk came out, they made a huge deal and brought a 70 millimeter IMAX print to the Cinesphere and did an entire Q&A with Chris Nolan. It was a big Oscar push. They had a party afterwards. Nolan, There's a photo of me and Nolan like standing there. It was like so crazy. But in this instance, if I'm universal... And there really isn't, I mean, all, a lot of the big, big films that we're talking about already premiered at Venice and Telluride. Mm-hmm. Why not make that a huge thing where you bring Chris Nolan, Christopher Nolan to the Cinesphere, bring a 70 millimeter IMAX print of Oppenheimer movies made $900 million at the box office, make a whole story out of that. That becomes a whole nother push again. I'm just, I'm I, mean, I feel like you me. gotta be careful. You don't want to wear the guy. I mean, he, ju- I feel like he just wrapped. But Doug doing... was the same thing. Same time frame. Literally the same yeah, time. That, July, July they 21st. Gotta, they gotta save him and, and cause they're going to need, I mean, here, the, the, the difference is, yeah, but I feel like the difference is that Oppenheimer has a shot. Like, I don't, I don't think it, anyone did. I don't, I don't well, think anyone went into that that Oscar season thinking that Dunkirk was uh, dude. Dunkirk had like ten was going to win. No, but dude, I mean, t- but like, no one thought it was going to win that night. Sure. It was, it was not sure. a so. So my point being that like a lot of people are going into this Oscar season saying it's Eight. Oppenheimer versus uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's uh, film. Right, but if so, but if you're Universal, why not another movie that didn't play Tiff? Yeah. Why not make a big deal and just do an event? I mean, again, I know the movie's been out for two almost two months now, but the uh, the press coverage of that also you're getting all of the press in a theater to see it in the most visual format, the 70 mil IMAX. You're right. But I, th- I think it, there, there's just a danger no in there. Images there's, there's, a, there's a danger in like, because over even, you know, funny, and yeah, because there, there, there's even like a, you know, I, I did a story uh, on Tuesday about like, you know, Barbie being available for on, on VOD. Yeah. And like yeah, a couple people in my newsroom are like, okay, like we're getting a little sick of like the Barbie Oppenheimer stories. So yeah. like, I, I think it would be smart for each of those films to disappear. I mean, keep in mind, like they got to keep this thing going through, you know, almost March. I think yeah. it would be smart for them to lay low for a while. Oh, let Lord. us let us kind of forget about, you know, let the other films come in and have their moment and then swing back in at the end of the year, beginning of next year and say, oh, don't forget, you fucking loved us. Oh, and I'll tell you this, too. This is super inside baseball. Um, but Bell is not a sponsor of the Toronto Film Festival anymore. Oh, wow. Um, and what about the whole thing that always played before the movies? They had plenty of other things to play mm-hmm. before the Believe me, there was a number of uh, very annoying things. To play they had the Nicole everything. Kidman uh, AMC thing. Did you guys see no. the Saw one? The Saw one. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't they see recreated that. It they, with they, the they recreated saw. it with Jigsaw on the bike. <laughs> Did they really? Yeah, it's yeah. like some, somehow torture feels good in a place like this. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. <laughs> SNL beat them to the punch on that, though, when Chloe Feynman did. Oh, yeah, uh, she was great. They did that a while back. Hers it was, was really good. funny. Yeah. But the song um, one's funny. But they didn't do anything at the Cinesphere, and I just wonder if maybe there's not a partnership oh, there interesting. anymore. Interesting. There, there wasn't <sighs> anything that was so. So oh. anyway, uh, as I said, go down in the comments and tell us why you guys think Nickelback is hated. That's what I want to hear from everybody. This week. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So follow us online. We are at Jake's Takes, at Kev McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Rublin. Oh, Gabe's not here this week. He's covering the Apple event. Um, we didn't Jeff, give Jeff a shout out. out. Hello, Jeff. How are you, sir? 
Jeff is uh, quiet behind the scenes. He doesn't like to. He's probably not even listening anymore. Uh, <laughs> Jeff muted us an hour ago. <laughs> exactly. All right. So until everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.